Jeremiah 30 to 33 is where we have been for these last few weeks. And this bit in the middle of Jeremiah is called the Book of Comfort, and it's full of songs of consolation. And the song we're going to look at this morning is Jehovah Sid Kenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And if I read again verses 15 and 16 of chapter 33, to remind us in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord uh, Righteousness. All these songs of comfort are looking forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the Lord, our righteousness. And we must remember that Jeremiah at this point wasn't staying in Babylon. He was still in Jerusalem in prison under arrest, and he could have spent his days moping, but instead of that, he was rejoicing because he was looking to the coming of the Messiah. And my desire for every one of us here, whatever metaphorical prisons we may be in, that we will be able to say, Jehovah Sid Kenu is my hope and my song and my rejoicing. Now, those of you who know your Bibles will realize straight away that these verses have been written before. I don't know if you noticed that. In Jeremiah 23, exactly the same words were given by God to the prophets. So it was tempting for me, in coming to these verses again, to skip over them. But the thing is, God here, with Jeremiah, was purposefully repeating what he had said a few chapters before. And God never does things without a good reason. So the fact that these words, and especially the Lord our righteousness, is found a second time, only a few chapters after it's been already declared, should not mean that we should pass over them. I think God is trying to tell us something here. Not just Jeremiah, but you and me. God never repeats himself without good reason. Paul wrote, and he was writing about a similar theme to this, justification by faith, that it's Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness. In Philippians 3, right at the start of that chapter, he wrote something similar, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Listen, it's not tedious for me to preach on the Lord our righteousness again. I love this gospel of justification by faith, and it's safe for you to hear it again and again. Uh, Martin Luther said, I wish 
I could beat this truth into the minds and hearts of the people. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But may the Holy Spirit do it. May the Holy Spirit do it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, writing about spiritual depression, not just for those of you who are not Christians, but there are some Christians who are depressed because they've never really understood clearly the great central doctrine of justification by faith, which is what we've got here. Indeed, that was the whole cause of the trouble before the Protestant Reformation. Luther, that is. The Protestant Reformation brought peace and happiness and joy into the life of the church in a way she had not known since the early centuries. And it all happened because the central doctrine of justification by faith was rediscovered. It made Martin Luther rejoice and sing, and he, in turn, was the means of leading others to see this great truth. It produced the great note of joy. And while we might hesitate to say that people who have not clearly understood this matter are not Christians, the moment they do understand it, they certainly cease to be miserable Christians and become rejoicing Christians. So, if you're a miserable Christian this morning, may looking at this again make you a happy Christian. And if you're not a Christian, this is the very heart of the Christian message. What a witness to the society in which we're living in, that the church not only repeats the truth of justification by faith, but they see in us the reality of it, making us a people that are filled with joy. As one hymnist says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are and glorious dress. In these arrayed, even midst flaming worlds, and it's not just Ukraine that's on fire, even our own society is polarized. It's really uh, a bad time, isn't it? But midst flaming worlds, with joy we shall lift up our heads. So let's look at this again. And if you're really into your Bibles, you will see one slight difference between the two uh, times these verses are quoted. Here we're said, she will be called the Lord our righteousness. The church, realizing what she is in Christ, you realizing what you are in Christ, in chapter 23, it says, he will be called the Lord our righteousness. It doesn't matter. Christ is our salvation. And as we look to him, we can realize what we are in him. Is Jesus Christ our righteousness this morning? Very well. Let's just hit the words with a hammer. And it divides neatly into three. The first point I've got is righteousness. Righteousness. Christianity is about righteousness. What's righteousness? It's much more than being fair. God is a righteous God. Another song in the Bible, the Song of Moses, describes God as a God of Justice. He's the rock. 
He works justice, a God of righteousness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God rules the universe in righteousness. Hang on, you say. How come we find so much unrighteousness going on? How come we find a dictator invading another country? Well, there are many unrighteousnesses, but the judge of all the earth will one day do right. We're living in a moral universe. God is a God of righteousness. That causes a problem. Because we are not righteous. Now that doesn't mean to say that we are cads or something. That, that we are fakes. Uh, there are people who are that. But I take it a lot of us try to be good and honourable in our dealings with one another. But the problem is this. We haven't got that true righteousness. The moral compass, you know the phrase the moral compass? The moral compass that directs us has gone wrong. There are a group of hills in Britain on the Isle of Skye called the Coolins, and the rock on the Coolins is magnetic, it's gabbro. And if you try to use a magnetic compass on the Coolins, it doesn't work. Normally, a magnetic compass would work. But on the Coolins, the rock messes up with the needle. So if you're lost on the Coolins in mist, and if you try to look at your compass, you will often find yourself going down the mountains on the wrong side. Because the moral compass can't be trusted. And that's what we are like. God has created us in his image. He created us righteous. But there was a fall. Our first parents disobeyed God. And one of the results of the fall was that we didn't become as bad as we could be. But that image of God was mad. And so we still have signs of the nobility and the decency with which God has created us. But it's marred, so our moral compass can't be trusted. And there is something else here. There's a play on words. The king in Jeremiah's day, when he was given these words, was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's name means righteous you are, O Lord, or righteousness of the Lord. And the thing is, Zedekiah was the complete opposite of that. Zedekiah was a wicked man. And so what Jeremiah is trying to say here is when it comes to our own righteousness, it's the opposite of what it should be. Not that it means we're as bad as Zedekiah was, but it means this. When we desire to do good, evil is present with us. Or in the words of Isaiah, it's not ju just the sins that we commit that causes us to come under the judgment of God. It's the fact that our righteousness is not perfect. Our righteousnesses are soiled, are as filthy rags. 
And early on in Jeremiah, when we were in chapter 5, Jeremiah was given a task to find one righteous man. Do you remember looking at that chapter? Jeremiah looked far and wide for just one perfect righteous man. He looked amongst the religious leaders and he couldn't find any. He found a lot of hypocrisy there. So he thought, I'll try the common people. And so he went around the streets of Jerusalem trying to look just for a down-to-earth person that was going to be righteous. And at least they were not hypocrites, but they were still unrighteous, not perfect. And Jeremiah had to reach the point where I want every one of us to reach this morning and where Paul reached in his letter to the Romans. There is none righteous, no, not one. The people who read Paul's letter to the Romans, they thought that they were a cut above the rest. And Paul has to say, are we better than they? Not at all, God forbid. We're all in the same position when it comes to perfect righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is not one righteous man, woman, or child that is born of Adam in the normal sense. Uh, Wesley put it in another hymn. Have you seen yourself in this light? We often compare ourselves to other people that are worse than us. And we kind of pat ourselves and say, you're not that bad. You're all right. But this is not the point. The point is, do we compare ourselves to God? Do we compare ourselves to God? I tried putting some blinds up a while ago, and it looked straight. It looked straight in my own estimation. But when I put a spirit level next to them, it, it wasn't straight. It wasn't straight. And there is no one that is 100% straight. No one. This is what Wesley said. You don't compare yourself to another person. You compare yourself to God. Just and holy is thy name. I am all in righteousness. False. Foul. Dirty. And full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. No wonder Paul uh, ends his description of the human race. There is none righteous, no, not one. Whether you're talking about religious people, whether you're talking about normal people, Paul comes to this conclusion. He says, we know that whatsoever things the law says, the law of God, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He has to put his hand over his mouth, as it were, and says to himself, who am I to think that I'm somebody? Who am I to think that I am righteous before God? Have you put your hand over your mouth? Have you been silenced? The problem with us is that we haven't been silenced. Once a person has been humbled and realizes that he is not righteous, that if there's to be any hope, he's got to have a righteousness from outside of himself, then there is hope, isn't there? So that's the first word, righteousness. That's what God is looking for, and that's what we can't produce we can't produce it. 
think of the most godly person that you have ever had the privilege of knowing. I, I can think of some people now. And I can tell you this. They would be the first to admit that there is no good in them. They are the most humble people I know. But even if you look at them from your point of view, and they are so godly, you still have to come to this conclusion. They've got feet of clay, haven't they? Every person that God has used mightily, every Jeremiah, every Paul, they've got imperfections. The best of men are men at best. There is none righteous. No, not one. And then look at the next word, Lord. I know all the verses in capital letters, but this word Lord, even if the rest of the verse wasn't in capitals, would still be. Because it means Jehovah, as we had in that third hymn. Jehovah. Do you know what Jehovah is? The Jews of old couldn't utter the word Jehovah because it was so sacred. This was the name that God revealed himself to Moses by. He said to Moses, Moses saying to God, God, when he appeared to him at the burning bush, Moses was aware of his unrighteousness and God was calling Moses to do a work for him and Moses was saying, I'm not good enough for this, O Lord. And even if you do send me to the children of Israel, what shall I say to them? What shall I say regarding who has sent me? And God said to Moses, say to them, I am has sent you. Jehovah, God said to Moses, I am that I am, I was what I was, I will be what I will be, I'm the unchanging God. The world may change in its view of righteousness, but I am, I am, and Moses, I am in my covenant of grace relationship to you. I'm not going to change. So Lord means God. God. 100%. And yet, Jeremiah here is looking to this Messiah that's going to come. Now, the Messiah can't be King Zedekiah, who's named the Lord our righteousness, because he's anything but that. So it's not the normal line of kings that Jeremiah is to put his hope in. He's looking forward to another king that's going to come. Jesus. And this Jesus who is going to be born in, uh, is it 500 years time? He's not just going to be born a baby. He is going to be born a baby. He's going to be born in an unique way. Mary, who is going to conceive him, is not going to have sexual intercourse with Joseph. If that would have happened, the baby that would have been born would have been unrighteous. But it was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, that conceived in the womb of Mary this baby. So Jesus Christ is a real human being. A real baby was born in that manger in Bethlehem. A man there is, a real man. But at the same time, he is God. He's Jehovah. Now, I'm not explaining this to you. I can't. I'm just declaring it. The only righteous man, person, to have been born in this world was born of the Virgin Mary. It was a miraculous birth. 
It was the Holy Spirit that conceived, so that the baby that was born was 100% human, 100% divine. One person, two natures. There's your hope, my friend. Can you say this morning, my hope is in Christ alone? You may not be able to understand fully what that hope is, but can you say just that? This is the good news. It's not about us trying to be good enough. Whether that goodness is a religious goodness, whether it's a moral goodness, it's none of that. This is the gospel. But now the righteousness of God from the Lord is revealed, being witnessed by the Lord and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. It's Christ who's good enough. Can you say that? Only he is good enough to save me. Or as Paul put it later in Romans, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Praise be to his name. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus Christ, Jeremiah refers to him as a branch of righteousness. In Isaiah, he's even called a stump. It didn't look promising at first, did it? It was a baby born, not in the palace in Jerusalem, not to Herod the king, but born to Mary. Mary, a teenage girl. Mary, from a poor background. Mary, who had to give birth in a stable. And the baby, when he was born, had to be lain in the feeding trough of the cattle. What an unpromising start to our salvation. It's like a stump. And then that child moved to uh, Galilee, to Bethlehem to be brought up. And if you go uh, to Nazareth to be brought up. And if you go to Nazareth today, it's, it's not a nice place. It's not a nice place. And he grew up there. And what we have here is his active obedience. What was he doing growing up in Nazareth? The God-man. What he was doing was weaving for you and for me a robe of righteousness. God is a tailor. God was a tailor in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were under his judgments. They tried to cover themselves up, didn't they, with the fig leaves. That's what it's like to build your own righteousness. It's not sufficient. It's not going to cover you from the judgment of God. So what God did was sacrifice an animal. And then God the tailor made a coat from the fur of the animal. And he clothed our first parents in it. And this is what Jesus Christ was doing when he was living for 33 odd years. He wasn't doing it for himself because he didn't need it. He was perfect. But he was building that righteousness for you and for me, weaving through his obedience, perfect obedience, that perfect robe of righteousness. Doesn't your heart beat just a little faster when you read about Jesus' perfect life? Because it wasn't for him, it was for you. She shall be called the one who believes the Lord our righteousness. Doesn't it make 
you feel hopeful when you read about Jesus being tempted much more fiercely than we will ever be, and he never yielded one moment. Doesn't that give you hope? The active obedience of Jesus Christ. And then, when Jesus went to the cross, this is what he was born to do, as we'll be remembering shortly. It's the passive obedience. It's the fact that he took upon himself the curse for our breaking of the law of God. All of our unrighteousness was laid on him. His active obedience is life. His passive obedience is death. Is that what your hope is in this morning? This alone is my hope, that Jesus lived and died for me. Am I wearing this suit? I keep on mentioning this whenever I'm preaching on the robe of righteousness. Uh, this suit that I'm wearing, it hasn't got any man-made fibers on the outside. It's 100% natural, 100% wool. Is Jesus Christ 100% your salvation? Is your righteousness 100% Christ? There's no fiber there that is man-made from you. You see, if there is one fiber that's up to you, then there is doubt, isn't there? There is doubt. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon. He was through his life spinning the web, making the royal garments. And in his death, he dipped that garment in his blood. In his life, he was gathering together the precious gold. In his death, he hammered it out for us, a garment which is wrought of gold. You have so much to thank Christ for living as well as for dying. Have you ever thanked Jesus Christ not just for dying in your place, but for living in your stead. And then one little word to finish. Our, our, the Lord, Jesus, our righteousness. How does this righteousness become mine? Uh, how does this robe, this suit of righteousness, come to me? By imputation. Dear me, you say, that's a big word. What does it mean? It's a legal term. When a person commits a crime, the punishment is imputed. To him. So if you break the speed limits and you're caught by a camera, you have penalty points on your driving license. I'm not looking at anybody, and I'm not looking at myself either. <laughs> you have penalty points. That's imputed to you. It's a legal term. You may not like it, but that's not what the law is. Your legal standing is you are under the penalty of the law. Imputation, right? And people have gone to prison for trying to transfer their penalty points 
on their driver's license to another's driver's license. There was the case, I think, of an MP a few years ago. But this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is how the righteousness of Jesus comes to us. God first has to deal with our sin because we're under the penalty of the law. And in God's universe, there is a transfer of penalty points. Isn't that wonderful? Our points are transferred to Jesus Christ. He's innocent. But on the cross, he took our sins and our sorrows and made them his very own. He paid the debts. There is no hope otherwise. If Jesus Christ hadn't died for my sin, I will still be bearing it. And when I have to stand before God in judgment, I will be condemned forever. But on the cross, he's borne my sin in his own body on the tree. That's why communion is a time of rejoicing. So there is no more condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Because he's taken the condemnation. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice? If your sins are still on your shoulders, you have every right to be lacking in hope. But if your sins have been imputed, transferred to Christ, then that's the greatest reason for rejoicing. When I first became a Christian, that's what I realized. And I was a happy soul for many months. I was happy. But this verse here tells us more than that. It's not just that Christ has borne our penalty in his death for us. That's one half of the transfer. This is what we're getting at this morning. Christ's perfect life is transferred then to us. A few weeks ago, I was shopping in Tesco's. I've never come across this before in a Tesco store or in any other store for that matter. And the person in front of me was getting his wallet out, about to pay, and the cashier said, Sir, speaking to me, can you use your Tesco point card uh, to help pay this gentleman? I said, of course, I, I'll do that. So that man didn't have a Tesco points card. I had a Tesco points card. And I did what the cashier wanted me to do. I used my points card. So the benefit of my point was transferred to that person. He was very grateful. Jesus Christ's benefits. His perfect, beautiful, sin-free, God-honoring, God-pleasing life is transferred to me, to you. Wow. Listen to Spurgeon here. He saw it. As the merits of the blood takes away our sin, so the merits of his obedience is imputed to us for righteousness. Listen. We are considered, as soon as we believe, as though the works of Christ were our works. God looks upon us as though that perfect obedience had been performed by us. He looks upon us as though his life had been our life. 
and accepts, blesses, and rewards us. Better than Tesco rewards. Rewards us as though all that he, Christ, had done had been done by us. That's why it's not tedious to preach again on the Lord our righteousness. There's a song which says, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Are you? Are you? Am I? Let me conclude. How exactly is this righteousness imputed to me and to you? Well, we have to turn to the New Testament, don't we, to know that. It is by faith and by faith alone. That chapter that I read where Paul said in the Philippians, it's not tedious for me to say the same things to you, but for you it is safe. What was Paul talking about? He was talking about his conversion experience. Interestingly, Paul repeated again and again his conversion He couldn't get over what had happened to him at the gates to Damascus. The light that he had seen, and more than that, the one he had seen, he was forever blinded by that light. He just couldn't get over it. And what Paul is getting at in that chapter is his own utter unrighteousness. Whatever he boasted in before, it was dung, it was excrement. And he's talking about his righteousness there as well as his sin. It it was fermenting, and he had come to Jesus Christ by faith, and he puts it beautifully when he says, to be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. It's by faith, by faith. Are you still trying to earn it? It's a free salvation. Now, when we're sometimes told that it's free, we think it's cheap, cheap and nasty. It's not cheap. It's expensive. It's so expensive, it costs the blood of God's only begotten Son, but it's offered for free. I can't say that too often. It's free. That's what Luther discovered. Luther, uh, as I read in the quotes by Lloyd-Jones, rediscovered this wonderful truth that had been hidden by centuries of religious tradition. And Luther gradually, it wasn't sudden, gradually rediscovered it. Gradually he came to the light. Paul came to the light suddenly. Luther had it gradually dawning upon him. And Luther, I think, was uh, preaching on Romans, the verse which says that he's not ashamed, Paul, of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation, for therein is revealed the righteousness of God. And Luther couldn't understand how the righteousness of God could be good news, because for Luther, the righteousness of God was the attributes of a God that was just and righteous, and poor Luther felt condemned by that. And then Luther's eyes was opened to see that the righteousness of God in Romans was the gift of righteousness, appropriated by faith. And Luther said, when I saw that, that verse became to me the gate to paradise. The gate to paradise. And then 
A few centuries after that, there was a man called Wesley. We've been singing the hymns of his brother Charles Wesley. This isn't Charles, this is John Wesley. And John Wesley thought himself a Christian because he was doing so many religious activities. And he was so religious, he, in the 18th century, sailed across the Atlantic and went to Georgia to try and convert the Indians there. And he was doing that in order to build up his own righteousness. And on the voyage back in the storm in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, Wesley realised that his righteousness wasn't enough. And he was scared because he was going to die and he wasn't ready to die. But on that boat there was a Moravian missionary called Peter Bowler. And Peter Bowler explained to Wesley what I've been trying to explain this morning. And Wesley said, oh, I don't know if I have faith. I don't know if I have faith. And Wesley wanted to give up preaching. But Bowler said to him, don't give up preaching. Preach faith until you have faith. And then you will preach faith because you've got faith. That's good, isn't it? And a few weeks afterwards, Wesley went into a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London. And somebody was reading from Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. You see the link? And as this person was reading, this is what Wesley said. Let me get the words right. He puts it like this. As he was reading from Luther, describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. Saved me. And Wesley couldn't keep quiet after that. Uh, this proper, proper man uh, even stopped becoming proper, and he just went preaching, even in the open air. He had a song. He had a song. Luther had a song. Paul had a song. Jeremiah had a song. The Lord, our righteousness, a century after Wesley, Robert Murray McShane up in Scotland. He died before he got to 30, but it didn't matter because he had a song of hope. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, my righteousness. Is this your song? Have you seen it? Where are we basing our hopes? Have we come to the place where we say, my own righteousness is? Can't be depended on. I'm coming naked spiritually to Jesus Christ. And my only hope is that he lived and died for me. May no one go out of this place still saying, Jehovah Sidkenu is nothing to me. May you say, Jehovah Sidkenu, my saviour, must be. And then, Jehovah Sidkenu all things to me and when you come to die as Joan she wasn't that old Joan when she died but she was able to say Jehovah Sidkenu my death song shall be for his name's sake let us now sing before we come to communion Jesu lover of my soul let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll while the tempest still is nigh hide me O oh, my Saviour, hide till the storms of life be past, and then into the haven guide that talks of death. O oh, receive my soul at last. It's number 514 if you're listening. <laughs>